Since 2015, Pop Health Podcast has brought to you some of the best minds in healthcare, including leaders from government, not-for-profit, and investor-backed powerhouses, as they share successes, failures, and how our audience can move forward in today's constantly evolving healthcare world. Thank you for joining us for today's episode presented by 24-Hour Home Care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special edition of Pop of Podcast. Today's edition is about the Health 2021 Boston, Massachusetts conference, where I had the opportunity to interview leaders at this conference that included over 7,000 people. This conference included CEOs of the vaccines for COVID from both Moderna and Pfizer, and other leaders like government, other entrepreneurs, health systems, just a variety of folks from all over the world. In, in the episode, you'll hear either part one or part two from entrepreneurs, some of the leaders of the biggest organizations in the world, and much more. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Other episodes of Pop of Podcasts can be found on our website, popofpodcast.com, our YouTube channel, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks, everyone. Enjoy the show. All right. Well, folks, we have a very special guest with us today. We have Mickey Tripathi, who is the National Coordinator for Health IT with the Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, Mickey just finished a panel and probably had lots of folks wanting to talk to him afterwards. I really appreciate you making it over. Thanks so much for being here, Mickey. Sure. Happy to do it, Gavin. All right. So you've been in the role uh, since January, and we'll get into the role in just a moment. But before we do that, we like to get to know our guests a little bit. Uh, so maybe something outside of the IT world or healthcare world. What's a fun fact? I know you're a Red Sox fan. Any hobbies? Anything like that? Uh, yeah, boy. Um, uh, you know, I, I guess I guess maybe uh, I don't know if it's fun, but it's uh, it's certainly weird. Um, that this is actually my second tour in the federal government. My first was working in the Pentagon. Okay. Um, not even in healthcare. So I was a weapon system specialist doing cost analysis on weapon system programs, uh, working with the Air Force at the time. Yeah. And then I moved over to the Secretary of Defense's office where I became an expert in over the horizon uh, warfare uh, in Marine Corps weapon systems. Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so have you, is that considered a, a military, like are you working? I was a, civilian. Civilian, okay. I was civilian, yeah. Got yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. My whole family is, uh, well, besides me, uh, and, uh, they were military guys. Oh, okay, um, yeah. So the men, excuse me, not my whole family, the men in my family uh, served in the military. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, really yeah. quickly on the weapon systems, anything cool in like 20 seconds you can say it was like a cool weapon you analyzed? Or well, yeah, I mean, I spent a lot of my time um, working on the uh, the V-22, which is the tilt rotor Osprey. I'm sure you've seen it. You've seen it in video games. Okay. It's the aircraft that takes off and lands like a helicopter, oh, yeah. but then it swivels forward and goes forward. Okay. Actually, we were... Um, Secretary Cheney, Dick Cheney was the secretary at the time, and we actually canceled that program. And I was the lead analyst on uh, on that particular program. And so wow! <laughs> the secretary picked up my analysis, decided that we were going to cancel the program, and then it went back and forth with the Congress uh, as the Congress restored it. Department of Defense canceled it. Did that about five times. Okay. And then uh, and then they ended up restoring it because we have it in the in the force now. Very cool. Well, thanks yeah. for the thanks for the fun fact there. Sure. So, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, the is it the the office of the national coordinator and what that means? ONC. Yeah. Refer to it as yeah, yeah. So we're responsible for coordinating health IT activities um, both within the federal government as well as out in the market. Um, and I know that's a you know, sort of a Pollyanna kind of, oh, you guys coordinate, great. <laughs> um, but in particular, what that means is uh, we 
work on and promulgate standards related to health information technology that are used by the federal government as well as are required by different programs like CMS and CDC. Uh, many of you may, uh, listeners I'm sure are familiar with the Meaningful Use Program um, and, uh, and the Meaningful Use Program, the ONC role in that was that we certified the electronic health record systems that providers were required to use in order to get the incentives that CMS gave to them. So we do the standards work and we also certify, EH, certify EHR systems. So 95% of hospitals and over 90% of ambulatory providers in the country are using EHR systems that are certified by my office. Yeah, which is great. And one thing that was interesting on, on this note, uh, so like I shared earlier, Mickey just came from a panel, I sat in and listened. And one of the things you started off with was, how's interoperability going? And I was expecting you to say horribly, but because for our audience, they get frustrated, right? So top of, it's kind of like news, like there could be a lot of good things happening, but you only hear the bad stuff, yep. right? Yep. And so I thought it was really interesting. You said, well, the good and bad, but good, and here's why. And one thing you mentioned was, you know, in order for us to get to where we need, we need to have EHRs to exist. That's the first step, right? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, often people say, oh, healthcare is so far behind. Oh my God, we haven't solved interoperability. And I just like to point out that it was 10 years ago that like 10% of providers of hospitals, for example, had electronic health records and even, you know, lower number for ambulatory providers. And so, you know, we literally couldn't have had interoperability before then. It's like saying, you know, you want to have a phone network, except one problem, people don't have telephones. That's what it was. <laughs> um, right. So, yeah. you know, so the first thing we needed to do is make sure that everyone had a telephone and a telephone that connect with, could connect with other telephones. And then we build the networks on top of that. So that's, you know, that, that's kind of the, you know, the good news is that we've spent $40 billion plus as taxpayers, yep. plus a whole bunch of private investment to get us to a point that now, as I said, you know, over 90% of the provider organizations have electronic health records and now we're you know we're building the networks they're actually up and running to have interoperability across those systems um, to be able to share medical records yeah that is good news and i, li I liked uh, i wasn't expecting that answer but it makes perfect sense once you explain it yeah we do a good job hiding that you know we've actually had some successes in interoperability <laughs> yeah and, and speaking of success so on this panel there were other folks like many of you may be familiar with unite us which is actually an investment of many different health systems coming together yep. right they have now have a thousand employees i was shocked because they're kind of new right yep. Yep. and they're talking about you know social determinants of health we won't really get into that today uh, well maybe we'll at the end but one thing you shared is it's an obligation or if it's not already it's going to be an obligation to share information not if you want to share it but an obligation tell me what you or tell our audience what you meant by that sure yeah so right now um and you know, i'm sure you know most of your audience is familiar with hipaa um they may not know all the details of it but they're certainly you know uh, familiar with it and what hipaa says is that organizations you know that are that are covered by hipaa like provider organizations you know covered entities and business associates so uh, you know a, a hospital an ambulatory provider a pharmacy a health insurer those are all you know covered entities in in hipaa language and they're required to share they're they're allowed to share information with each other without patient consent as long as it's for what's called treatment payment or operations so the key word there is permitted or allowed, but not required. Yep. And so one of the things that we've seen in the market is, well, they're allowed to do that, but too often they still don't do that for a variety of reasons. My personal view, you know, there's a lot of people who, you know, 
like to say that, well, that's because they don't want to share the information because they see it as a, as a strategic weapon and, you know, and, and uh, they're trying to, you know, block that information. My personal view is that it's more a question of priority. Yeah. Provide organizations, especially during the pandemic, they've got a lot of priorities doing God's work and other things, saving people and a whole bunch of other things that's on their plate. And so, you know, sharing information with others may not be the highest thing on their priority list. Now we have a new rule that comes from the 21st Century Cures Act that was passed in 2016 that actually says, you know, that permission thing, now actually you need, you're obligated to share the information with other parties. So what, basically what that says to provide organizations is you need to move that up in your priority list. Yeah. You need to get the technologies in place to be able to share that on, you know, basically for every encounter with other authorized parties. So not just with anyone, but it's like with that other provider. You're a specialist, you need to provide the information back to the primary care. You're the hospital, you need to provide it to the primary care. You're the hospital, you need to share it with the patient. Yes. You can't tell the patient, oh, well, submit your form. Oh, you have to come in in person, sign this form. Oh, it has to be notarized. <laughs> oh, you know, now three weeks later, you're going to get the information. No, you have to make it available. If it's electronic, you have to make it available right away, just like you expect with your bank. No charge, as long as it's electronically available. Those are, those are the requirements of this new rule that went into effect April 5th. Okay, April 5th of 21? This year. Okay, yep. awesome. Yep. And so you were three months in at the time. So folks, uh, Mickey started the rule January. January 20th. What, one minute past noon on January 20th, as the Constitution prescribes. <laughs> okay, very good. So another thing you touched on, and I, I couldn't remember the exact wording, but I deal with this in my day job. Uh, I don't do podcasting full-time. Is when your folks are trying to share information, they might have to fax it over. Yep. Right. Or yep. mail it. My own doctors. Right. Oh, we'll mail it to you in two weeks. Right. Huh? Yeah. Tell us what you guys are doing to it's, combat that. It's brutal. <laughs> <laughs> so and, and it's, you know, part of the frustration that we have with interoperability. So as you were describing before, I think that there's a lot, there's a lot of good news about where we are with interoperability. These networks are actually up and running. It's, you know, the major EHR vendors. So for anyone who's out there using Epic, Cerner, Athena Health, um, NextGen, Allscripts, um, you know, eClinicalWorks, all those vendors are actually parts of these networks that are connecting, um, that are connecting on the back end to share medical record information. And they do millions and millions of those shares every day. Um, so that's the good news. The bad news is, to your point, that doesn't always get all the way down to the front line of the organization. So you still have the, you know, the situation where you're a patient, let's say you are going to go for a second opinion, right? And you want to be able to get your records and have them transferred. Literally in Boston, it would be across the street yep. to another fine institution, right? And what they will almost certainly say to you is, what's the fax number? Or sign this paper form. And in the meantime, you know, I'm sitting there. It's like, I know in the, in the background, somewhere in this EHR system, you are able to send this information electronically. But they haven't done enough to push it all the way down to the last inch so that the frontline staff know that it's available, so that every part of the organization knows that your organization instinct should be push the button and send, not, oh, this fax is more convenient. And I think a whole bunch of that is about culture and is about training, yeah. because right now that's in everyone's heads, right? They know, they know faxes, they don't know anything else. One other quick story, my daughter is a doctor. Okay, um, at, locally? Uh, uh, yeah, she's at Mass General now. Okay. Um, but you know, one of her experiences in going to Mass General was that you know, she thought the training on Epic was fine. She's like, Fine, I you know I understand that you know she thought it was you know like why do we need a week for this training I mean <laughs> I'm up and up and running in a half day I don't see why I need a week the thing she needed training on was the fax machine yeah literally at one point <laughs> she wanted to send some records to a community doc and she's like how do I do this and they said print it out 
and fax it. And she's yeah. like, how do I do that? <laughs> and then, oh, there's the fax machine. She's like, how do I do that? <laughs> I've never yeah. seen one of those things in my life. So anyway, that's the current state, but we need to press hard to, you know, to make the default be that you can't fax it anymore. You actually have to send it electronically. Yeah, that's great. And one thing I, I meant to touch on earlier, you mentioned you know, private sector, government, I forget exactly what we're talking about, but um, Mickey was on stage with big business, Google, uh, Unite Us, and forgive me, uh, Venture. Health Reveal. Health Reveal, yep. excuse me, and then the moderator was from Venture. Um, what I've learned over government, what I see in person is government's not big and scary and out to get us right? Like you guys, you're asking for-profit commercial businesses to help you yep. come to us, tell us what we need to do. Absolutely. Right now it's obviously there's more to it, but that's a general theme. And I, I've seen that in my own, you know, world over the last few years. So folks out there who are thinking the government is, you know, putting up walls, that's not the intent. You're trying to tear those walls down. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this can only happen with this kind of partnership. And so, you know, we do everything we can, you know, from ONC to do that. And also, you know, I spent 20 years in health IT before one minute past noon on January 20th, <laughs> working yeah. in the private sector. Yeah. So I very much appreciate that, you know, that, um, that the federal government can't figure this stuff out without the knowledge and the experience and of the private sector and the willingness of the provider sector to actually do stuff or the private sector to do stuff. Because at the end of the day, we can say all we want, but if the providers aren't going to do it, then, you know, because you've imposed too much workflow on them, they, you know, they can't treat patients better if you, you know, if you impose that, then it's not going to work at the end of the day either. So we, you know, we've announced a number of collaborations, you know, just collaborations where we have with the private sector embracing them yeah. to come in and, and work together on things like standards, um, as well as, you know, a whole bunch of other, you know, vehicles that we have to be able to get, um, to be able to get feedback. So contact us. We have tons of contact information on our website, mickey.tripathy at hhs.gov. Email me directly. We'll get you to the right person. And I am here. I reached out to Mickey, I don't know, a week ago or so. Um, and he responded, I don't know, within a few hours. I actually looked right. at my email. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, we're, you know, we're just a small little podcast, but you know, he's making himself available. He wants to get the word out. And he, when he gave that email address, which once again is... Mickey.tropathy at hhs.gov. <laughs> he's truly available, right? So uh, take, a, take a listen, uh, or take a listen. Yeah, listen to our <laughs> podcast, of course, but uh, take a look at Mickey's uh, profile and reach out. Um, definitely yep. some cool things happening and one of the reasons why I wanted to have on. So really quickly, you referenced the, the Cures Act, which I misheard as the Cares Act uh, right. previously. Right. Uh, maybe in like 30 seconds, can you explain what the CARES Act, CARES Act yep. is? Yeah, so the CARES Act is not the CARES Act. People do that all the time. Um, even in the government, people do that. So the CARES Act was passed in 2016. And I know that's just a date, but you know, I, I, will, I will absolutely date it by saying that it was signed by President Obama. Whenever I say that, people are like, oh, whoa, okay, that was a long time ago. <laughs> and the other thing I'm going to say will also date it. It was signed with incredible bipartisan support. So almost every member of the Congress actually, um, uh, you know, actually passed uh, the 21st Century Cures Act. So really, really strong um, uh, support from both Democrats and Republicans at the time, signed by President Obama. And what it says is a couple of things. The first thing it says is that um, organizations are prevented or uh, prevented or prohibited from interfering with the sharing of information with other authorized parties. Yep. And that patients in particular, but any authorized party, should have access, electronic access to their information via an API, which is like an interface, yep. um, uh, without special effort. 
was the exact quotes that were used without special effort, and they should have access to all of their information, not just some little subset like your test results. So that was a, that's a really important statement. And that was what we were getting at before, the change from HIPAA to the requirement, the obligation that says you're required to make that, um, that information available. So that's one part of what it did. The other part is it said that ONC, my office, is responsible for establishing a nationwide network for the sharing of information. So I described before, these networks exist, but they're still not perfect. It's yeah, a little bit like, yeah. you know, imagine AT&T and Verizon and T-Mobile, all great nationwide networks, but not perfectly connected, right? Yeah. You know, that would be a really weird world, right? You know, if I had to, you know, I want to call Gavin, but at first like, oh, are you in AT&T? No, oh, now what am I going to do? Um, <laughs> or, oh, we can only text, but we can't call, yeah. right? That would be, that's a little bit of the weirdness that's we have today. That's a good, great analogy. Yeah, really? so, that's, so that's what 21st Century Cures Act said to ONC. Okay. Figure that out. Yeah. Get those networks to get connected so we have seamless interoperability from a user perspective. And so that's that's the other thing that we're working on right now. That's going to go live in the first quarter of 2022. Okay, and you're talking, when you say Q1, you mean like January through March? Uh, January through March. Yeah. There's, you know, the, why do we do it like that? Well, just to protect myself, but also yeah. because, you know, because a big part of it is government clearance. Yeah. And I have no control over, you know, What's that clearance process look like? What does OMB say? Are they going to weigh in? Are they going to say, no, that's fine? Or are they going to say, oh, we have a lot of things to consider here, and then, and then that slows the process down. So I don't want to you know, sort of oversell something when I don't have control over it. Totally get it. Makes sense. Okay, so as we wrap up, uh, two more things I wanted to touch on. Sure. Um, where was I here? Uh, minimal viable compliance trap. <laughs> Explain in a nutshell what that is. Minimal Maybe you maybe you repeat. Sure, that. absolutely. You, you can say yeah, 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 yeah. So <laughs> what I mean by minimum viable compliance is that we'll put out a regulation, and, and again, many of your um, audience will know will be familiar with uh, with meaningful use, and who knows, maybe they were involved in implementing minimal viable compliance. But the idea of minimal viable compliance is, you know, there were a whole bunch of rules, let's say, or regulations, where we said, all right, providers are required to use these EHR systems, yep. and they're certified. And then meaningful use came along and said, and you know, you're required to share information with patients through this. And then, you know, and then you get at you know this question of well. What does share mean, and how much am I yeah. supposed to share? And then you so you start to have thresholds, and then you start to say, well, okay, so you have to do it with twenty-five percent of your patients, let's say. And so then what happens is organizations will say, okay, I'll share it with twenty-five percent of my patients, and now I'm done. Yep. And it's like, well, but that, come on, it's like that wasn't the spirit of what no. this. You know, you're supposed to be doing it with all your patients, right? Yeah. And that's what I mean by minimal viable compliance. We had too many situations. We had another standard, and I'll, I'll you know, just uh, touch on it briefly. It was called direct, which was basically an ability to email securely one provider to another. So instead of the fax, right? Yeah. Instead of being able to say, well, wait a minute, you're leaving the hospital. I know that the records want to go to your um, primary care physician. Instead of faxing them, I can just send them via secure email. Yeah. Well, you know, we implemented an approach, a standard for you know being able to do that. And then what ended up happening was that you know everyone started focusing on, well, what am I required to do with that? Oh, I'm just supposed to do, or I'm just required to do this, which is a transition of care. Well, okay, I'm not going to make it available for that or that or that or that. And also because I don't really like that, I'm going to bury it in the basement of my software so that no one can really find it, or yeah. they'll have a really hard time finding it. That's what I mean by minimal viable compliance. Yeah, well luckily, as you mentioned, it's gonna be an obligation to share information and do it uh, well yep. in the near future. Yep. Uh, lastly, uh, just super briefly, 
SDOH, Social Determinants of Health, you guys are working on measuring or having it tracked, but it's early stage, right? Yeah, so okay. what we do is we have a data set that we call the US Core Data for Interoperability, which is like the minimum data set that's required to be supported by all EHR systems for the purposes of sharing. Yeah. Just so, you know, if someone wanted your record, they ought to have some sense of, okay, here's what I'm going to get, and that'll give me a pretty good sense of what's going on with Gavin. You know, yeah. Maybe there's more information to get if you have something complicated, but that's pretty good baseline information. So what we do is we add more data elements every year as standards develop, and as you know, we sort of see different things that, you know, that are important in industry. In July, what we did is we added five social de determinants of health data elements to that required data, and sexual orientation and gender identity data um, that's now required to be made available. Sexual, um, uh, sorry, social determinants of health data is still very new, it's very yep. nascent. So what that does is it's a set of guidelines right now, but over the next year, we're going to be working with the standards community to say, how do we make those hard and fast um, uh, standardized data elements that will then say are uh, required to be made available in the HR systems. Awesome, folks, I can do this for another 90 plus minutes with Mickey. Me too. <laughs> and uh, maybe down the road we'll see, we'll work with his team to see if we can do a full episode. But awesome. uh, Mickey Tripathi, who is a national coordinator for health IT for the Department of Health and Human Services has stopped by. Mickey, thank you so much for being part of uh, Health and uh, our podcast today. Great. Thanks so much, Gavin, really You're enjoyed it. You're welcome, take care. Right. Take care. All right, folks, so I wasn't planning on this guest when I first came here in Boston, but had the opportunity to have lunch uh, the other day and I ran into or sat next to Peter Schlecht. I don't know, Peter, help me with your last name. Peter Schlecht. Thank you very much. And audience, uh, most of our audience, Peter, is uh, domestic here in the United States. Uh, some of you may have picked up on, uh, on Peter's, uh, if you don't mind me saying, accent. Um, Peter is from Germany. And uh, give us a little background uh, before we jump into your organization, Peter. Uh, you are the founder of BrainGrade, so we'll talk about that. But uh, tell us where you grew up and how you eventually uh, ended up at BrainGrade. Sure. So I grew up in Würzburg. Um, it's a small town in the middle of Germany, what should be famous for the first Nobel Prize. Okay. X-rays went to Würzburg. It wants to be famous for wine, but it's actually not. <laughs> um, so, and then I studied economics and informatics. Um, I built up my first company, so I soon wanted to be an entrepreneur. Um, typical reasons, kind of getting recognized by the father. Okay. And <laughs> yeah. then I built a company for natural language processing and natural language generation for customer success and sales. Okay. So, to say it in easy words, email autocomplete. Okay. And yeah. Sold the company and had some freedom and to think about what to do next. Wow. How old were you when you sold the company? I was about 31. Wow. Good for you. <laughs> yeah. This, this is really cool. So uh, you mentioned your father and yes. you wanted to make your proud, right? <laughs> I'm assuming uh, that did the trick. Um, yes, but th then you realize that your father is whatever you're doing is proud of you. Yes. And so kind of this, your motivation goes down and then you ask yourself, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? Yeah. And the deepest thought that I found for myself is kind of the same. I think that every entrepreneur has is kind of starting with, I want to make the world a better place. And then you have to ask yourself, okay, how yep. am I going to do that? And for me, that was the thought, if we can improve our most important tool, 
what's obviously our brain, yep. then we increase significantly the chance of solving all these problems and challenges in this world. Yeah. And driven by this thought, actually, at this point, um, something else happened. Um, Alzheimer's stroke my family. And I saw that this is actually very much aligned as these are the people who have the biggest need for help with their memory, with their brain. And so the journey began. Yeah, so that's great to hear. And one, it's neat to hear your personal connection. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons besides your cool accent, and I knew you're probably from Europe and I love soccer, so we talked a little Bayern yeah. Munich a little bit, but I'm older than Peter, so I was naming some names. He's like, yeah, I was a little kid. He didn't actually say that, but I was naming some names and he was probably a, a young, young man while I was uh, well into my adulthood. But um, one of the things that really connected with me is uh, for audience, some of you may recall this, but uh, my dad, I think I shared this with you, Peter, uh, he was 70, had uh, early, well, it was rapid stage uh, dementia, and he eventually passed away. So oh, when you were talking about- Sorry to hear that. Oh, thank you. It's been a long time, and uh, he's in a better place. Thank you very much. Um, so when you were telling me the story, I'm like, oh, personally, I'm interested in hearing more. But as you started to talk about it, I know my audience and our audience of the show work in healthcare, of course. Many of them work with patients who have dementia, many work in senior living or home care. And so you're talking about this chip. And so your company's name is BrainGrade. Before we get into what it is, how did you come up with the name BrainGrade? It's, it wasn't actually my, myself who came up with the name, but the idea is an upgrade for the brain. Okay. Okay. So let's go ahead and talk about it. What is this upgrade you're talking about? So the upgrade I am talking about, and this is in the first place, a medical device for Alzheimer patients is a neurostimulator, so a brain implant that is helping Alzheimer patients. So it's giving them a bump in memory and it also helps them in decreasing their decline of the disease. But when I'm saying that, I have to add, we are an early stage company, so we are building the device in the moment. Yeah, so this, this is all like, I mean, if this comes to fruition, I know when we were having lunch, you mentioned about two years is your vision of when this becomes a reality. Yes. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. A little bit longer. So, I, um, But when really the company kicked off, um, as I told you, I have the background of economics and informatics. I had a lot of things to catch up and uh, this nearly took me a year. Um, yep. And I'm not at the level um, where kind of from a neuroscience standpoint, but then you learn kind of how much factors are going into such a device and it's like from the chip to the electrodes to um, the system design to for sure the neuroscience, but it's also, and you mentioned your audience, it's how healthcare professionals should handle the device. So, I mean, it's fully implanted, but still it needs to be charged. Um, and to listen to them and learn how they interact with that, that was very important for us. And kind of not only kind of from the patient's view, but we both of us unfortunately learned that Alzheimer's is also a disease that is not hitting only the patient, it's also hitting the environment, it's yes, hitting sir. the families. So we have to understand this, we have to understand uh, from the neurosurgeon standpoint. And yeah, I'm, I'm blessed kind of with all the conversation a week and a half as a team with all these different stakeholders um, in these disease. Yeah, so folks, one thing you probably just picked up on is 
Peter, like if you guys want to reach out to Peter and give input or ideas, he's all ears, right? Like he's got the idea, he's got the team. I know you guys are uh, headquartered in Austin, Texas. Uh, Correct. I'm trying to encourage Peter to go see Austin FC, and I'm guessing most of the audience has no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's Austin Football Club, which is a soccer team, folks, not a American football team. Um, so that's your headquarters. But yeah, uh, how do folks, um, I know we're, we're not done yet, but how do folks reach out to you, Peter, to give input or share ideas? What's the best way to the do so? The easiest way, or the two easiest way, is either via email, it's very easy, ps at braingrade.io or feel also free to reach out to me via LinkedIn. Awesome. In English or German? Um, you're free to choose. <laughs> okay. Got it. Uh, I ran into a guy the other day who speaks six languages, uh, but English and German only, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's um, a little bit of, of, of this French. This is but more homeopathic uh, from school. And then there's my kind of third or fourth language that's English so it's a, then the combination of both <laughs> yeah <laughs> nice awesome cool so uh, the the goal is in a couple of years maybe more that there is this chip is that this I mean what would you, I, what you I, I, I would call it like yeah. um, many people are most likely more familiar with a deep brain stimulation device what Parkinson patients get kind okay. of to control their tremors and this is actually the extension for it or, or like the um, one development step further because we have to make clear these deep brain stimulators are 20 years old technology okay and in our eyes it makes no sense at all that you have specialized medical devices and you know, for your heart for your hearing kind of to improve with cochlear implants but you for parkinson but you don't have any specialized device for alzheimer's yep. especially as we learned unfortunately that drugs don't seem to be the solution and kind of drugs trials in alzheimer's this is unfortunately a big graveyard only one percent have somehow positive outcomes but when you look into bioelectronic trials you have more like 88 percent positive outcomes so we have a clear hint and we see in the science that we can help the patients with such a device wow but, i did not yeah. i did not realize that, that there's already indicators of success with these devices oh, yeah. okay. this is there's also already these deep brain stimulators are available for Alzheimer patients okay but these devices have been created for exactly the opposite they have been created for stopping an oversynchronization in the brain and kind of to reduce brain activity you know while we need a device kind of what enhances the brain yeah and uh, what what helps with the synchrony in your memory circuit so this is kind of what we are building and not kind of kind of implanting a cochlear implant to <laughs> yeah help uh, then with alzheimer's it makes no so that so no, that's no great so it's, it's still a ways out right so um but let's say let's say it works two three years we're we're going it will work Wow, look at that. It will work, folks. All right. Are you taking investors? <laughs> we, uh, we are taking investors. Thank you very much for asking. Um, can I repeat my email and my LinkedIn? <laughs> you can. At the end, definitely. At the end. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, two, three years, it will work. Five years from now, where do you anticipate? Assuming it, yeah. you're telling the truth, it works. So after a couple of years being it out, 
of it being up and running, where do you think it'll be? Will it be across the United States, across the world? Will it have to start small? Tell us about that. So in five years, we will be on the market. So everyone uh, can buy it. That's the idea and that's the timeline. So we are done with our trials and everyone can purchase it and we hopefully can help as many patients as possible. So our first go-to-market kind of is a combination of the U.S. Okay. as we are based in the U.S. We are doing our first trials in the U.S. Um, thanks also to the FDA. I think you maybe don't hear this too often, but um, kind of for the guidance and for the support. And then we also will get CE mark in Europe and the goal is to help as many patients as possible so kind of the US and the European Union is the obvious choice for us. Awesome Peter. Well hey really appreciate you coming by to give a little bit of overview about BrainGrade. I know it was short notice last couple of days but we were able to make it work. I know you want to be able to put out your contact information. I'm happy to, to give you guys another opportunity there. So Peter how, do, how can folks reach out to you? Yes. The easiest way, email ps at braingrade.io or LinkedIn. Thank you very much, Gavin, for the invitation. And as I mentioned, we are interested to speak to all stakeholders. So we are interested to speak to the caregivers. We are um, in just um, kind of to patients. We are interested to Alzheimer, um, key opinion leader. Um, so they really should look at our science because we are very confident that it will work, but we want to be sure that there are no gaps and we really can help Alzheimer patients and for sure also investors are welcome. Awesome. So I'm going to put a note in my calendar from three years from now to listen to this episode again and hear Peter say, it will work. And then I'll reach out to you and uh, see what kind of impact you guys are and making. And we we'll see us again. Yes, <laughs> that'll be great. Hopefully, you won't be too busy by then with all the the worldwide success you're having. So again, <laughs> thank you. You're welcome, Peter. Sch Peter, give me your last name one more time. <laughs> Peter Schlecht. <It's> a <laughs> I am half German, but I can't pronounce it. Uh, my parents will be upset. Super fine. <laughs> and it's and the funny now this I have to tell you it's the translation is Peter Bat. Oh, so, so I hope yeah. it's no open. <laughs> that is totally fine. <laughs> Thank you, Peter, very much. Again, folks, uh, Peter, who has helped uh, found uh, BrainGrade. And again, um, you can reach out to him, ps at braingrade.io. Thank you very much, Peter. Perfect. Thank you very much. All right, folks. So we have Krish Ramakrishnan with us today. Did I say that correctly, Krish? Ramakrishnan. Ramakrishnan. I'm it was one letter off. I'm sorry. I said it right the first time off the air. Sorry about that. Um, and Krish is the co-founder of Blue Jeans by Verizon. But when you guys first got started, you weren't Blue Jeans by Verizon, correct? We were just Blue Jeans. Yes. As the company. Very good. So before we get into Blue Jeans, I'd like to get to know you a little bit, Krish. We were talking off the air about sports. Uh, where do your sports allegiances lie? Well, I like the Warriors. I live in the Bay Area. I like the Warriors, and I like their chances this year. And uh, on the baseball side, I like uh, New York Yankees. Always been a Yankee fan. Uh, so that's where we are. Well, folks, we are actually recording in Boston. Unfortunately, we're <laughs> surrounded by soundproof barriers. So the Boston uh, Red Sox fans will not hear that. Uh, a colleague of, uh, of Krishna, Aaron, who helped put this together, uh, I know her husband is a Boston Red Sox fan. They're actually playing right down the street. So just be careful um, <laughs> what you say there. Okay, cool. So tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind Blue Jeans. When we started the company, uh, 10, 11 years ago, it was really about how to democratize 
uh, video conferencing. At that time, back in the days, video conferencing was a very expensive value proposition of a lot of companies. They had to spend a lot, upwards of $100,000 to $200,000 per conference room to set up video. So we questioned that value proposition and said, why cannot we have something that everybody can use in a company and make it also a cloud service universally accessible and that's the inspiration behind uh, the product. And we named it Blue Jeans because of that. Because we wanted something that has a universal appeal. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Cool, I brought some Blue Jeans with me, I know what you mean, okay. <laughs> um, so were you, was it pretty, I know you're the co-founder, so who's kind of with you supporting Blue Jeans? Oh, at, the uh, at the beginning. Right, I have a co-founder named Alago Perianen who, who we, I used to work at Apple and other companies like that. And we partnered together and we said, let's do something really different. And you know what? Both of us did not know anything about video conferencing. That's, that made it fun and that made it challenging and that made it worthwhile. Nice. <laughs> something like uh, innovation. Yeah, and I, so I know you got some funding and I know you're a Yankees fan. There is a connection there from what I recall. Right, so we had a lot of the venture funding, traditional venture funding from Silicon Valley, Huzu. In addition to that, um, midway, I was able to get one of my great Yankee favorite, Derek Jeter, uh, to invest. As you know, as he was retiring from uh, the New York Yankees and he wanted to do something to do, he was looking at how video will play a major uh, role in communication for athletes. And as part of looking at the Players' Tribune, which he's the founder of, he said, I want to be able to use video conferencing for that. And so through our mutual connection, we were able to meet, and he flew out to California, looked at Blue Jean, and said, I want to invest. All right, awesome. And um, so he invested in the company, did many customer calls for me, and uh, been a great supporter. Great, and then ultimately uh, Verizon got involved. Tell us about that. Well, the the, uh, the pandemic is a great accelerator of things. I mean, one of the things it did was turbocharge the use of video conferencing. As you all know, everybody had to use video conferencing, and we, as Blue Jeans, always sold into big enterprises, the okay. big uh, companies out there, and um, Verizon was looking into this space during the pandemic and said, we need video, after all, is a communication. Verizon is a quintessential communication company. So they said, we need to have this technology and take it to the next level. So that's how the partnership happened. The neat thing about this is the medium of video conferencing was used to make the M&A transaction happen. Yeah, okay. Such a transaction of such magnitude for the first time being done over video conferencing without having to meet yeah. lawyers, bankers, everybody else over months. And that in itself proved to Verizon that it's actually a worthwhile medium yeah. to do all sorts of business. Okay, so <clears throat> tell us a little about Blue Jeans. I think folks listening, you know, we're all familiar with Zoom now. So when I think of video conferencing, right? That's, yes. That's kind of something that I think I can share. What's different or what's the use case that's different than when people think of like traditional video conferencing? Well, at a, at a surface, Blue Jeans is similar to Zoom in terms of its uh, meetings capabilities, large 
uh, events capabilities, conference room capabilities, we are there. Okay. Beyond that, uh, Blue Jeans focuses on uh, business customers and enterprise customers cater to their needs, and which is different than what a, a small business or consumer would focus on with other products. So okay. that's one difference. So we cater to So what do enterprises and business need? They need security. They yeah. need privacy. They need encryption. They need um, analytics to know who is talking, when they are talking, all of those things. We provide that in droves. But one of the differences, and the, just the focus on enterprises and how, how to sell them and integration, one of the things that enterprises have is a bit of everything. They may have products from Microsoft. They may have products from Google. They may have products from Cisco. Yeah. One of the things that we do well is interoperability. We make all those systems work well together with our service. So um, enterprises need that um, homogeneity in, in terms of how they want to use their services. We provide interoperability and great end user experience for their uh, users. Okay, so let's let's talk about how BlueJeans is working with the healthcare world. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, reason we are here. One of the um, uh, observations we have made is televisit is here to stay, right? It started, it got its boom during the pandemic, but what we, people have found out is it's a, there's a lot of convenience for televisit. The thing that was missing though, during the pandemic, everybody used their favorite video conferencing tool, which was not designed for televisions. Right. It was designed just for meetings. But Gavin, you and I know a meeting between uh, a patient and a doctor is not a meeting, it's an appointment. Yeah. There is, there's a workflow that is different. So what we did was take the BlueJeans video technology and, and purpose-built um, a telehealth application for telehealth, televisit itself. So some of the differences would be very, things you would notice would be, hey, I don't need to download an app. I just get a link from my provider, say, hey, I have a three o'clock doctor's appointment. I click on the link and a video should show up. Yeah. That'll be simple because many of the people are not um, uh, good with technology, especially uh, the, our senior citizens. Oh so, yeah, right. And they may not have the latest phone. I I have to say I hated having to download apps, especially yeah. during the pandemic, right. to to talk to somebody. It was frustrating. Right. Yeah. So this way, somebody will click a link, and the video will appear reliable. It's Verizon. It's five G. All those things work well. The second, if you notice, if you go into a regular clinic, not you just directly you walk in, you meet a doctor. You actually go into a register, uh, your lobby a waiting room, you meet, you do fill out some intake forms, and then uh, the doctor reviews their intake form and then they come into the appointment. Right. Right? We had to recreate that experience in a virtual way, right? So when you join a Blue Jeans meeting, you go into a waiting room where there is, if the uh, doctor wants you to fill out an electronic intake form, what's your, what's your condition, fever, whatever, you'll be able to say all those things. And if 
and there will be other things you can do in the waiting room, like watch videos, read articles that pertain to your... All those things are popular in the waiting room. There you, you can review while we are waiting for the doctor to come in. And at the same time, you can also upload all of your healthcare data. Let's say you're wearing an Apple Watch. A lot of people do. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great that during your visit, with your permission, that Apple healthcare data is uploaded and visible to the uh, doctor, right? That's one of the reasons people always went to the clinic is because they need, they need their blood pressure checked or temperature checked or oxygen checked. What if we can just do all that? Yeah. It changes the whole game completely. And, and so we have done that. So those are some of the differences, uh, especially with uh, what we have done with healthcare. Okay. So who are some of your partners making this happen? You mentioned like the Apple Watch. Apple, so. right. So Bluejean completely did this and we partnered with Apple for integration. We also partnered with uh, health uh, record organization, the EHR that they call, Epic is one of them. Okay. So Epic, uh, we integrated with them, so that's the back-end system that hospitals use for maintaining their electronic health record. Yeah, I'm sure many of our listeners are uh, definitely users of that. Right, yeah. so we seamlessly integrate with that, and we are also integrating with other EHR providers. We're not just limited to Epic, which started with that. There'll be integration with Cerner, the second one, and then there'll be a host of myriad of other um, providers out there. Got it. So uh, if while our show is intended for healthcare professionals, we do get the public listening in, you know, from time to time. So the public, like a general consumer of healthcare, may not know that their video software that they're talking to the doctor is a BlueJeans product and they won't have to pay for it, right? Your customer is the, the health system, the doctors, the insurance companies. Am I understanding that correctly? Right. Okay. The, the, so the, the consumer... It's not going to pay for the service. The health the healthcare provider would provide a link, and it's uh, they are the ones uh, paying for it. One of the things that I uh, forgot to mention from a consumer side, one of the uh, uniqueness is we also integrated a uh, interpreter service, live interpreter oh, cool. service, into this uh, video interaction, similar to what would happen if you were to visit a clinic and you need a translator. Yep. Many hospitals have translation services Correct. that they contract out with. So we have directly integrated that into the offering. So when you join and you say, hey, I need a one of 100, 100 languages, we can pick one and live interpreter okay. would come in. That is, that is huge. And if you're not already, I encourage you to like lead that as a headline with, a, you're probably already doing it with a lot of your meetings, but yeah. you know, disparity is a major issue, right? Yeah. And cultural issues. Yes. So that is awesome. And so folks, uh, in case you missed it, if you weren't listening over the last 30 seconds, the ability to have live translation services built in to this system, I mean, I don't know if anybody else does it. It's pretty dang neat. And it's a hot topic right now. Yeah. So uh, that's really cool. It's uh, live interpretation and live translation, both. So translation is more text, uh, speech okay. and text. Interpretation is a medical grade interpreter that the hospital have. They will come in live and translate in real time. Thank you for clarifying. That was helpful. 
Very good. So if folks who are listening are like, hey, you know, the service that we currently have, or we're looking into a service, and they want to look into blue jeans as a potential offering for their health system, um, what, what do they do today? Just Google blue jeans, or how do they learn more? Well, they can Google bluejeans.com or come to verizon.com and get to blue jeans telehealth services. All right, awesome. And Krish, are you active on social media? If people kind of want to follow the company or follow you, what's the best way to do so? I'm active on LinkedIn. Okay. So that's where my profile is, and that's where they can follow me on. Awesome. Now, I am able to spell your name because I wrote it down, but can you spell it for the audience uh, one more time so they can follow you? Uh, Krish, K-R-I-S-H, Ramakrishnan, R-A-M-A-K-R-I-S-H-N-A-N. Very good. Well, folks, Krish has been our guest. He's the co-founder of Blue Jeans. And uh, I wish you and your team great success, and we'll look forward to seeing uh, what you guys do in the near future. Thanks so much, Krish. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. All right. Well, Amy is back from Fitbit. Great to see you again, Amy. So great to be here. So much has happened in the last couple of years, so it's nice to be back in real life. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So uh, for those of you that have been listening uh, to the podcast for a while, uh, you might recall at the health conference in 2019, Amy uh, joined us for an episode we recorded from Las Vegas. And at the time, there were powder out power outages in Northern California, where you were from. I think you mentioned like you guys were camp, your kids were camping out, or your husband, or you remember that? I do. Yeah. I was just about, I think I had either just come off the stage or just uh, was about to go on the stage. And I got this call from my husband that my family and my house was being evacuated because there was danger from wildfires. And I, so right before I'm getting on stage, I'm calling my husband and saying, don't forget the dog and the passports and everything else, Some, you know, something that we didn't think we'd have to deal with. But happy to say that um, you know, uh, they were able to contain that pretty quickly. Um, and though there's been devastating wildfires since then, um, knock on wood, as far as I know, all safe at home. Very good. Well, uh, this, might, might, may, this might not make the show, but there was another power outage in San Francisco with the Giants recently. And I'm a Dodger fan, so I don't know if this is safe. Oh, is this I'm sorry safe, to Amy? hear that. <laughs> <laughs> I am from Boston, though, so okay. <laughs> Red Sox, you know, there's, there's a big game tonight. So yes. we'll focus on that one. All right, sounds good. Yeah, folks, we're, as, uh, as we mentioned earlier, we are here in Boston. Fenway Park's only a couple miles away from us, um, and they're playing the Astros tonight. Uh, this is, by the time you hear this, you'll know the results. So uh, let's jump uh, into Fitbit in just a second. But uh, last time we got to know you, we know you were a weekend warrior. But tell us something about you that's uh, outside of the workplace, something, a fun fact, something about you. A fun fact, wow. Uh, well, one thing that I find interesting and has actually been become a pandemic habit um, is that my husband was a, a former professional tennis player. Uh, and I played tennis loosely um, in high school. Um, so we've picked that back up during the pandemic, um, but he has to play with his left hand. Ah. Uh, he's right-handed. And so with that, we can have a little bit of a competitive game. And I think he still takes it easy on me. So I've now become a, a tennis person. Um, and in particular, I really love cardio tennis. Cardio tennis. Tell us about that. Well, what isn't better when you put it to great music, right? So um, there's a, it's kind of a cardio workout uh, with a tennis racket and with great music in the background. So kind so of brings are, all the things together. Are you actually hitting the ball? You are hitting the ball. There's a coach and they are firing rapid fire balls at you, but they're making sure that you're getting your cardio workout at the same time. So it's really fun. About four to six people max. Um, so you can imagine you're kind of rotating through stations and different types of shots. So wow. you get your tennis in, but you also get a really great workout. And are you wearing your Fitbit during this? 
Absolutely. In fact, my tennis instructor now stops and asks me, like, how's the heart rate throughout <laughs> it um, to try to, uh, you know, make sure that we're all getting that workout. Awesome. Cool. So let's jump into Fitbit. So when we were chatting a couple years ago, you probably knew, but I didn't, what was happening behind the scenes with the Google acquisition. Um, when Google acquired Fitbit to be up front, I was like, oh, Amy may no longer be there in my head. You know, I was like, oh, but you're here. So tell us about that acquisition and how it's gone so far. Well, I'm thrilled to say I'm still here, first of all. Um, it's been a really exciting two years. Um, very unusual in more ways than one. You can imagine with a, a pandemic um, and an acquisition. Um, but I'll, I'm here to say that it's been really terrific. Um, what we had hoped for um, is that we are able to continue to further our mission, which is all about helping people live healthier lives, um, to be able to do that with impact and at scale. Um, and so I think with Google now and the backing of Google and all of the other great things that Google's doing in health, we now have the opportunity to really to continue to innovate on that vision and that mission. So really excited to stay uh, to say that I'm still here and that our team is really continuing to further the great work that we're doing. Awesome, cool. So uh, back in 2019, I think I had just bought my wife the Versa 2 or was about to get the Versa 2. She still has it and no, Fitbit did not send me any free products, um, but she uh, she is still wearing hers. So Thank you for being part of the Fitbit family. Absolutely. We're not premium members though. Tell us what, what, but tell us what premium is. Absolutely. So for our premium membership is um, almost about about that length of time owned, about 18 months or um, almost two years old. Um, and really what it is is to help you extend and get the most out of your Fitbit experience. So it really takes um, you know extra insights into your, your health and well-being, so kind of personalized insights, trends over time around your personal um, your health metrics. Um, and then it also provides workouts, so from 10 minute to 60 minutes to full body to stretching exercise exercises, and then also mindfulness. And that's one of um, the ones that I'm using now every day. That was another thing when the, you know, when, when COVID-19 and the pandemic hit, I started a mindfulness practice um, because the mental health, you know, effects are real and will be lasting. And so um, that was a really important piece to me. So having even five, 10, 15 minute sessions, morning, evening for all, for stress, for all sorts of things, um, and being, and even mindful eating um, and bringing all those things together in a single package for Fitbit users who really are looking looking to kind of uh, increase their experience with Fitbit and make sure that they're reaching their goals even faster. Okay, cool. And what does that cost if someone wanted to do a premium package? Yeah, it's uh, $79.99 a year. Okay. Um, and then there's also a monthly membership, so you can try it out. And all members have access to a couple month um, trial to be able to start that out first and really experience it firsthand um, and what it can do to kind of uh, amplify your, your Fitbit experience. Okay, cool. So there's other wearables out there. Um, what, you know, for our healthcare audience, what would you say is different and what should be important for them to know about Fitbit versus other wearables? Sure. Uh, so, you know, of course, I've been Fitbit for a long time, um, and we were the, the first and kind of the innovators in this space. Um, so I think but what's important about us now is that our mission has really never changed, um, and it continues to be really important to what differentiates in this of the category, which is this focus on health. Um, so it's really a health first and a holistic health story. So it's activity, sleep, nutrition, and mindfulness, and how they all work together, or sometimes they don't, and that's the problem. Um, but looking at that data in context, um, and then providing those tools like the premium membership that we mentioned, or trends and insights to help you further reach those goals is really what's unique about Fitbit. We really think about, as a user, how can I have, a, 
provide you with a frictionless experience to help you reach those goals? How do I make that easy, fun, and effective? And that's really around providing you know, tools, guidance, and inspiration. Okay, so your users, who are your users? Give us like your demographics. Wow, well it's thrilling to say that we have almost 30 million um, you know, active users, um, which is really impressive. So our users, as you can imagine, really represent you know, the entire world and, and all sorts of demographics. We have products for kids. Um, we have products that's really about a family story. So it's kids, it's parents, um, those who are you know, busy, active lives, um, you know, young professionals and up into seniors. Um, so I know my whole family, of course, is connected. And so I've got kids that are wearing devices and I'm really focused on making sure they're healthy and active, but I'm also able to stay in touch with my aging parents and make sure that, that they're staying active as they age. And so it's really across the board, which is really exciting about living that mission of like, help everyone in the world live yeah, healthier lives. Yeah, let's talk about the seniors. So your parents, do you have, like, do they give you access to their results or do they want to hide that from it you? It kind of depends. No, in, in, I do. They, my parents um, are terrific and sometimes I end up being tech support for them as well. But, I bet. <laughs> um, but no, there, I mean, I think seniors is a really important demographic for us. Um, you know, there's a trend in the industry brought on and accelerated by the pandemic yeah. around healthy aging at home and being able to do that safely. And so how um, can a wearable who can be proactive and preventative around health, um, but still have that comfort of, you know, I missed my doctor's appointment or I wasn't able to go to that check-in for health and safety reasons, but I'm, I'm still able to actively monitor myself. And so you can also take that um, information and, and bring it to a physician if you if you need to, and if you're seeing a trend um, that is you know outside of your personalized range. Okay, cool. So we talked about seniors. When we chatted two years ago, Fitbit had was forming partnerships with health plans and other employers. Sometimes just for the employees. So it's been two years since. Tell us about some of the progress you've made uh, with health plans, employers, etc. We're really pleased with the progress in this area, um, which we call Fitbit Health Solutions. And that's really, as you mentioned, working with employers, health plans, governments. Um, it's ways that we can bring our consumer experience to populations and how can we help drive population health. Um, and so we've had a lot of progress in this area. Um, we're working with, with many health plans in the US as well as internationally with governments. Um, and we're working not only with their employees, but we're also really proud of the work that we're working with around both commercial, uh, so you know, kind of commercial programs for employers, uh, but then also our work in condition care management. Um, and there's uh, been lots of research that shows that when you integrate a Fitbit experience into a condition management program. By that I mean diabetes prevention programs, diabetes programs, hypertension. When you integrate that Fitbit experience, you're going to see a lift in engagement and results and therefore better outcomes. Um, so that's really exciting work for us because we're all about having impact and impact on health, health care, health care savings, and also health outcomes. Okay, awesome. So you mentioned governments, international. So when you yeah. work with the government, what does that mean exactly? Yeah, we're just thinking about um, programs. If you think about in, in the US, you know, healthcare is, is driven largely by employers and health plans, but we also have governments in the US who are responsible for many lives. So um, Medicare, um, Medicaid, um, the VA, who we are working you know, with all of those segments of the population. And then internationally, um, it's government-sponsored healthcare. So okay. the way that we think about it is really around the payer. So who is responsible and is going to care about the long-term health of the individual and also 
also of the population. And so our goal is how can our devices and our services and those Fitbit experiences really help support care um, for that population, which again could be a country um, and it could be um, a subpopulation like the VA. Okay, so let's put that into reality. And what I mean by that is how does your conversations with these payers, government, private insurance companies here in the US, mm -hmm. How does that trickle down to the end user? Do they get, for example, a Fitbit covered by their health plan? Do they get reimbursed? Walk us through that. That's exactly right. Um, so they, as a, as a user, um, as an individual, I might have access to a um, free or a subsidized um, Fitbit device, um, whether it's a tracker or our great smartwatches, um, more full feature devices, um, to support my health. Um, and it's a great way to have touch points of care outside of the four walls of the doctor's office. So you might see your doctor a few times a year or, or maybe you know less last year. Um, and so how can you make sure that you're supporting everyday health and really being proactive and preventative in your health? So you might have access to that, something that maybe you might not go out, you might in, as an individual might not be motivated to do that on your own um, and you might need a little extra support. Um, and so providing that as part of a preventative or, or or a program, let's say I um, was diagnosed with uh, diabetes, um, you know, and I might be at high risk for diabetes, the earlier on in a lifestyle, if we're talking about type two here, that you could, um, that I could change some of my behaviors, my activity, my sleep, what I eat, um, I could have a marked impact on the progression of the disease or even reversing that disease. Um, so the earlier on upstream, we can catch those and help with the lifestyle features um, that you could change to help impact your own personal outcomes um, is is really impressive. It's about seventy percent, I think, of um, of all you know chronic conditions um, have a lifestyle component to it that could be managed. So it's about bringing that, making it easier to access, making it you know very accessible, affordable, and engaging for them to um, to have access to care. So let's talk about that uh, as we wrap up here. Engaging. So at the health conference here in Boston, where we're recording. A big part of what we're hearing at multiple discussions is about behavior being a large chunk of someone's health care or health. One of the things that frustrates me, and forgive me if I'm controversial here, audience, I believe that for those who choose and have the ability to choose to engage in good behavior should not have to pay as much for health care. Some people may disagree. If we have the ability to to take care of ourselves. I believe there should be incentives to take care of ourselves. And I'm curious, not, I'm not, I don't, not curious, I don't want you to have to give an opinion here, but has Fitbit, has there been any incentives you've seen with health plans or employers to use Fitbit and like to try to drive behavior to take care of one's health? Are you able to comment on that? Sure, so I would say one, it starts with access to care okay. and access to the tools to support health. And so I think that's what's really important. And that's what's important around working with governments and other payers who are mutual, where incentives are aligned. There's a lot of talk at this conference, as you mentioned, around value-based care and moving into outcomes-based care. Um, and I, 
we believe that you need to first give everyone equal access and opportunity sure. to, to healthcare. Um, and then once you have access to healthcare, it's giving them the tools to help them live their best life or be them their best selves. And a lot of that comes down to education and awareness. Um, and that's a really uh, powerful tool that, that Fitbit really thinks about is how do you drive behavior change with a health companion on your wrist? Someone who's always kind of looking out for you and thinking about and giving you insights around your activity and your sleep and how they work together or why you might be having certain um, you know, symptoms or behaviors. And so I believe that the best thing that we can do to help support healthier outcomes across the board is open up that access um, and have that access at the population level. Um, and that really starts at the grassroots. You know, Again, that comes back to some work that we do with the VA or with Medicaid or with Medicare, but other populations who might ha not as have great access to care as some of us here. Okay. And so does Fitbit, let's say the population does have access to it, and do does Fitbit have the capability of like showing leaderboards and things like that or we do have okay. leaderboards and encourage friendly competition. We all know that we work out harder or we're more accountable. Um, and we know that who we surround ourselves with is so important to our health and healthy communities. Yeah. So we really, um, really do try to foster that. And we do provide uh, you know, badges when you hit, hit a first, like I think I've circled the earth a few times um, you know, with my step count. Um, so really trying to provide uh, internal and intrinsic motivations and then allowing you to share that extrinsically. So whether that's a competition or a bragging rights to say you're at the top of the leaderboard, but various ways to help support your health um, long-term, whether that's intrinsic or extrinsic motivation. Okay, cool. And folks, you might hear some background noise. Just a friendly reminder, we are at the health conference in Boston. So um, let's finish with this. You've been with Fitbit for a while. Can you share about a time and we have Lauren from PR with us, so I'll be cautious here. There's probably certain things you can't say. Uh, and thank you, Lauren, for helping coordinate your call, you know, a lot of this today uh, with, with Amy and others. Uh, what's a time in your Fitbit history where you're just like, this product was brutal? Or, wow, we were, this, this was a waste of time. Are you able to share, like, anything like that? <laughs> Sure. Wow. Um, you're going to go back into my, my early days of Fitbit. I've been with uh, the, the brand and the company happily for um, almost 14 years. Um, the first one, uh, all joking aside, is we probably should have thought about the brand a little bit more. Everybody still capitalizes the B. It's F-I-T-B-I-T. -I -T -I -T. The B is lowercase. And I spend a lot of time copy editing documents uh, that still have uh, the capital B, not from our, our team, but externally in the marketplace. So that's maybe be something we should have we should have thought about uh, branding campaigns maybe earlier um, on but and all and that that's a serious one but on the you know on the product side I think we um, in early iterations and part of this is just the technology and the innovation catching up to the ideas right and we see that across all sorts of industries but it was really about how do you take out some of the friction in um, in literally wearable something you want someone to wear all day, all night, all the time. Um, and so some of our earlier products um, were clip-based products, um, which were great because they were very discreet. Um, and we, we still have, have made some and you have the opportunity to make them as a clip. But we found a lot of people really responded to the watch form factor um, because it was just natural and it was kind yeah. of a natural replacement. Um, we also used to, um, ha you'd have to tell the device that you were going to sleep. And we found it's much less friction um, now that we can automatically detect that you're 
you know, about to go to sleep and when you're waking up. When you have to tell it to do that, um, it doesn't seem as smart and it adds a layer of friction. So what we always look for is how do you remove friction from the experience and really um, just make it auto magic for the user. Auto magic, okay, awesome. <laughs> All right, and lastly, the biggest win. You've been around 14 years. What would you say is a highlight for you? Uh, something you look back on and it's like, I'm really, I'm gonna tell my grandkids, you know, 30 years from now or whatever. I am really proud of the impact that we have had on health at scale. Um, that, you know, when I joined as the fourth employee <laughs> uh, 14 years ago, I mean, the scale at which we've been able to impact people's lives and health um, is really insurmountable. Now, I think about that at a population level, but that's also at an individual level. So to have the opportunity and the um, pleasure of you know sitting at a conference where someone comes and hugs you because they said you know you saved my parents life because I was able to see this metric and we were able to get them help um, and to be able to do that again at scale we're doing that uh, two things I'm particularly proud of we're doing that for the VA right now for caregivers um, for veterans themselves and for the staff um, and so that has been incredibly meaningful and um, to just be able to support them as we, we think about you know the, the pandemic and, and the support that we're able to provide. So um, that's, and then the other one is seniors. So we talked about that a little bit earlier on in the podcast, but senior care, particularly over the last couple of years, um, has been really impacted, um, you know, as we think about the, the impact of COVID-19 um, and, you know, the advent of telehealth, but which is, you know, promising, but not quite there yet. Right. And so our ability to be able to help seniors um, stay healthy um, at home um, by, you know, the use of proactive, preventative kind of health companions, um, that work is, is work I'm, I'm really proud of and I think will continue on long into the future. Awesome. Well, hey, Amy, great having you back again. And um, lastly, how do folks uh, learn about Fitbit? Just the website, is that the best way to yeah, you can uh, you can find us at Fitbit.com and and hopefully in, in lots of your friends and family as well. And um, we you'd, we'd love for you to come and, and check us out. We have had a lot of innovation in the last couple of years. Amy McDonough has been our guest, a leader at Fitbit. And Amy, your title is long, so can you help remind the audience uh, your role there at Fitbit as we uh, close out today? Absolutely. Thanks again for having me. Um, so I lead our health solutions business. So I'm the managing director and general manager of Fitbit Health Solutions. All right. Very good. Well, thank you so much. And Lauren, thanks for joining as well and helping coordinate a lot of stuff here at uh, Health. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Stay safe and healthy. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Pop Health Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. And if you have and want to check out other episodes, visit us at pophealthpodcast.com, iTunes or Apple Music, Spotify, Stitcher, and now YouTube as well. Take care.